you're listening to a podcast from the University of Manchester. Hello and welcome to a brand new episode of The Buzz. August would usually mark Manchester Pride, and while COVID may have caused this year's event to be postponed, we wanted to take the opportunity to celebrate one of the university's legends of whom we are most proud. I am, of course, referring to the father of modern computing, the originator of artificial intelligence, a true eccentric and a war hero whose work saved the lives of millions of people, Alan Turing. Later, I speak to James Sumner, Senior Lecturer in History of Technology at the Centre for the History of Science, Technology and Medicine, about Turing's time at Manchester and his legacy, while Joe catches up with Turing's nephew Dermot to talk about his time code-breaking at Bletchley Park. But first, myself and Joe will be sharing some of our favourite random facts about Turing's extraordinary life. So we've each prepared a few of our favourite facts that you might not know. So do you want to hit me with something first, Joe? Yeah, so my first fun fact is that Alan Turing was something of a philanthropist. So it turns out that he'd quietly provided financial support to a woman called Hazel Ward while she was doing voluntary work in Africa. So Hazel was about 20 years older than Alan, and she was actually the daughter of the foster parents in the home where Alan spent much of his childhood. And another really interesting example of his philanthropy is that Turing sponsored a young Jewish boy to help him escape Nazi oppression around the time of World War II. So in 1938, uh, a number of Jewish refugees were trying to escape the Nazis by entering the UK, but you actually needed sponsorship in order to get in. So Turing was able to provide sponsorship to a teenage boy from Austria called Robert Augenfeld so that he could be educated in Britain. Uh, so Alan was able to find him a school that would take him in and also would waive the fees for a refugee. Wow, that's amazing. And, and then did he then remain in the UK? I think he remained in the UK for a while, as far as I know. And I know that Turing took an interest in his education and the, the exchange letters going forward and, and things like that. That's amazing. OK, so... Here's my fact. So what's amazing about Turing is that he foresaw the potential of computers and their place in the world at a time when they were essentially just glorified calculators, very, very big glorified calculators. But what's amazing is that his own research on computers and artificial intelligence was based on notes written by a woman nearly a century before that, Sir Ada Lovelace was a gifted mathematician who worked closely with Charles Babbage, the designer of the analytical engine, a theoretical general purpose computer. And Ada was fascinated and wrote in detail on the potential of these machines if they were ever built. So she suggested it could be used to create music or complete other tasks. But most pointedly, Ada published ideas for what we would now call computer programs. And these notes were used by Alan Turing in his own work. So two sort of legends of computer science there linking up across across the generations. Yeah, that's incredible. Yeah. Um, so my second fun fact is that now, I'm sure a lot of people are aware that there's a statue of Turing in Manchester. Um, but what people may not know is that there's, there's a few what you might call secrets associated to the statue. Uh, so 
for those who don't know, there's an Alan Turing monument in Sackville Gardens, which is close to the university's north campus. And it's also close to Canal Street, which is Manchester's gay village. So what may not be as well known is that uh, on the bench where the Alan Turing statue is sitting, there's a sequence of letters. Uh, and these letters mean the founder of computer science, as it could appear if encoded by an Enigma machine. Um, and of course, it was the Enigma code that Turing helped to crack to help bring a quicker end to World War II. Wow. Um, yeah, and also what people may not be aware of is that apparently, I'm not sure if this is 100% true, but apparently the sculptor who made the statue buried his old Amstrad computer under the plinth as a tribute to, to Turing. Cool. Well, like a lot of us, um, particularly during this period uh, of coronavirus, Turing was a fan of running to get rid of his stresses. I personally prefer the sitting down and eating crisps method of stress relief, but Turing loved to run. And he wasn't your typical Sunday morning jogger. In fact, he was an accomplished long distance runner who tried out for the 1948 British Olympics team. So he lost out due to injury because if not, he could have had an Olympic medal to add to his very many accolades. But his actual tryout time was only 11 minutes slower than the, reg than the time registered by the British silver medalist that year, Thomas Richards. So wow. speedy. He used to actually run from Bletchley Park to London just for meetings, which is a fair, <laughs> a fair old distance. That's so impressive. Yeah, just, just, just to make you feel a little bit more inadequate. I know, Olympic time. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's incredible. Best of the best. And um, so my third and final fact is, it's, it's more of a, a common mistake that I think is quite interesting. Um, so some people believe that the the logo of logo of Apple, uh, obviously the huge tech giant, uh, is a tribute to Alan Turing when in fact it isn't. So I'm sure everyone will be aware that the, the logo is an apple with a bite mark in it, uh, which some people may believe could refer to Turing's death. There's a, there's a big debate really about uh, whether did whether Alan Turing did die from eating a, an apple with cyanide poisoning, but that's maybe a debate for another time. But the designer of the logo for Apple uh, and also the company itself have denied that it's a, it's a tribute to Turing. Although apparently Stephen Fry once asked Steve Jobs whether the design was intentional and Jobs replied, God, we wish it were. <laughs> yeah, so I think, it, I think it's more of a, a happy coincidence. Uh, and then just a, a final little snippet as well, which I think is interesting, is uh, going back to the, the potential poisoned apple. Uh, some people have suggested that uh, if he did, in fact, eat, the, eat a poisoned apple, this may have been Turing reenacting a scene from Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, which was apparently his favourite fairy tale. Oh, right. I didn't know that. Yeah. That's really interesting. Yeah. I'm not sure if it's 100% true, <laughs> but it's, it's, a, it's a theory. Yeah. Yeah. Well, final, final Turing fact from me. And um, the work of Turing and the rest of the code breakers at Bletchley Park in cracking the German Enigma machine, which if you've ever looked into how the machine works and the code breaking involved is absolutely mind frying. Um, really, really difficult to get your head around, but by them um, 
cracking that code, it's thought that they ended the sec their work brought the Second World War to an end two years earlier than would otherwise have been the case, and through that, saving millions of lives. So it's complicated how he did it, but like many of us, he was certainly helped um, by a good strong brew in his favourite mug. And in fact, Turing loved his favourite mug so much that he chained it to one of the radiators at Bletchley Park so no one else could use it, which I think is fair <laughs> enough. Yeah, and it's actually, we can relate to that. We can all relate to that, uh, working in an office. And that mug is still there today as he didn't tell anyone the code for the padlock he used to secure it. So in a place oh, wow. of code breaking, no one has been able to break the cryptic code that keeps his mug chained to a radiator. And um, he also back then used to wear a pyjama top to work and a gas mask because he didn't like breathing in pollen. So he would have slotted into 2020's coronavirus pandemic perfectly. Head of, head head of, of his, his time. time again. Yeah, We're working in comfy pyjamas, wearing a gas mask. Yeah, great. <laughs> he was a man very much ahead of his time. Yeah. So that's it. Yep. So I think we've both learned some stuff about Turing we didn't know before. And hopefully you'll learn a lot more about Turing from our two guests in this podcast. So I'm here with Sir Dermot Turing, acclaimed author and nephew of Alan Turing. So Dermot, would it be true to say that Alan Turing directly helped the Allies to win World War II? And if yes, how so? Well, all right, there's a bit of a myth here, um, and uh, this tells us more about British psychology than it does about Alan Turing, I think. Um, the thing is that what we're all very proud in Britain of what Bletchley Park achieved during World War II, uh, cracking the German ciphers and providing intelligence to military commanders, which uh, I think made a huge difference to the way that they were able to uh, conduct their forces in in the field and, and and at sea. So yes, Bletchley Park certainly made a difference. Here's where the psychology comes in, though, because we love to funnel all that pride into one hero. Uh, I've got a horrible revelation for you and uh, your audience, which is that the more than one person worked at Bletchley Park and yeah. worked. Alan Turing didn't work at Bletchley Park after the end of 1942. So <laughs> we've got to re-examine that myth a bit. Um, there were 10,000 people working at Bletchley Park at its peak uh, towards the end of the war. Uh, and there were many people who had lots of brilliant, bright ideas about code cracking. There was more than one code. There's another horrible revelation. People won't want to know that there were things other than Enigma. Um, so, uh, Alan Turing had a big role in, in the Enigma story, but certainly not the only role. And without the contributions of others, uh, the speedy, efficient, um, very practical solutions to Enigma that were able to be turned around, churned out in a factory style uh, manner. 
he was not responsible for that kind of delivery, um, even though he had some of the bright ideas that led to that being, becoming possible. So I think we have to try and sort of have a good perspective on what he did there and remember that there were other codes, other brilliant people, people who had different skills for managing and therefore could bring to life what came out of his ideas. Um, and then the other thing I think we have to remember is that Alan Turing didn't do all his invention on his own, you know, so mm. what we call Alan Turing's clever ideas didn't just spring into his head from nowhere. They were developments of ideas that other people had suggested to him, uh, and in particular the preliminary work done in Poland by the Polish code breakers and the machinery that they had invented to... Uh, tackle the enigma problem and he was just extending and developing that uh, albeit in very brilliant and clever ways i don't want mm. to sort of dismiss that but uh, it it kind of uh it uh, perhaps it's an overstatement to say it annoys me but but somehow it, it discredits the others when we say that world war ii was won by alan turing i mean that sort of conflates all sorts of um, things that we know not to be true <laughs> mm. um, uh, and it discredits the other guys at Bletchley Park and uh, it, it, uh, it, it perhaps also discredits those people who actually fought the battles because they're the yeah. ones who won World War II albeit with some helpful intelligence provided by some non-combatant people um, uh, you know working in England. Yeah. Uh, so you mentioned Bletchley Park there. I know you've got a, a book out called The Codebreakers of Bletchley Park. Can you tell us a little more about that? Yeah. Um, the, I, I think perhaps um, this, is, this is a good thing because um, the uh, publishers of the book thought that it would be a good thing to have an opportunity to celebrate the lives of some of the other people. I mean, not, 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 trying to um, uh, somehow whitewash Alan Turing out of the picture altogether, and he has a prominent role in it, but uh, to give an opportunity to showcase some of the others and what they did and to show the diversity, if you like, of uh, not just the people at Bletchley Park, but also the things that they did. And also it's an opportunity to retell the story. Um, uh, let me just explain about that for a minute. Um, I think, again, we've sanctified Bletchley Park slightly um, mm. uh, and therefore it must be a place where nothing went wrong and all the relationships between all the people were um, uniformly harmonious and uh, you know, they, these, these splendid chaps just turned out this marvellous product. Actually, it's more exciting than that. It's not quite as dull as all these people sort of getting along famously all the time. There were internecine wars going on all the time. There were, uh, famously, there was one occasion when the chief executive basically got fired. Um, there were rows about all sorts of things, uh, including the introduction of machinery and, uh, and how the place was going to be managed and the relationship between the military and the civil sides of the... Uh, organization, the difficulty of getting resources for a secret organization. There's lots of tension there. Um, lots of catty stories by some of the codebreakers about some of the others. And so it's an opportunity to try and sort of, uh, I don't know, bring a slightly more colorful uh, picture because, you know, without those human 
tensions and uh, uh, and the sort of the slightly uh, unusual variety of people that we had there. I think think it perhaps becomes a, a, a bit duller than it could be. <laughs> yeah, so it sounds like there's lots there that uh, a lot of people wouldn't really know about. Uh, I've read that Turing himself could be quite eccentric, eccentric while working at Bletchley Park. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Well, I think that's true. Um, though, again, we perhaps need to put some perspective on it. So um, there's a, a story I was just reading the other day, actually, by one of uh, Alan Turing's co-workers at Bletchley Park, a mathematician called Peter Hilton, who I actually met in the 1990s. He's a delightful guy. I'm afraid no longer with us, as is true with so many of the Bletchley Park uh, folks. But he tells the story about Alan Turing's bicycle, Alan Turing didn't need to lock his bike up uh, because the chain on the bike was broken and after so many revolutions of the pedals then the chain would come off and probably knock the rider off uh, and uh, this was great because Alan knew entirely how the uh, uh, relevant link coming into connection with the relevant spoke at exactly what point in the uh, cycle journey that would happen and so was prepared for it and, and took uh, suitable action. Most people thought this was just completely and utterly eccentric because why wouldn't you just go and get the wretched thing fixed? Yeah. <laughs> but he thought, no, no, I don't need to go and get it fixed because it doesn't actually cause me a particular problem because I can predict exactly when the problem is going to arise and it means I don't have to lock my bike because everybody knows that my bike is bust. <laughs> so then nobody wants to nick my bike. So this is sort of you know, it's kind of logical, but it's kind of like not the way that the rest of us would approach the thing. Yeah. Just to put some context around, I mean, that's just one of several stories of about Alan Turing. And there are stories about other code breakers at Bletchley Park. There were quite a few eccentric folks there. Um, those eccentricities, I think, came to the surface because when the story of Bletchley Park and its achievements first became known in the mid-70s. The government was still very sensitive about what could and could not be told about Bletchley Park. And the idea was that when people were first allowed to write their reminiscences of Bletchley Park, they were not allowed to talk about any code-breaking techniques and they're only allowed to talk in very general terms about what the uh, intelligence product that Bletchley Park had produced was. So what was there left to talk about? Well there really wasn't much other than well you know there was this splendid chap from Cambridge and he was a mathematics professor and he dressed badly and uh, he, he did these eccentric things and so we discovered all these the slightly loony things that the code breakers got up to rather than in their in their personal habits rather than in their um, actual uh, achievements and I think that's that's changed a bit because we know a bit more about the sort of technical side of things now but it does mean that the stories about the eccentricities were the first things to be published and so they kind of stayed with us they've become the narrative of Bletchley Park in some way mm. Wow uh, so, obviously, you mentioned that Alan Turing wasn't alone at Bletchley Park. Uh, can you tell us a bit more about the other people who worked there? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that this 
opportunity that this book created was to um, bring uh, into the spotlight and in, into the limelight a bit some of the other code breakers. Um, so, uh, I mean, Alan Turing really was hired as a mathematician rather than as a code breaker, and he had to sort of, you know, learn on the job, as it were. Whereas there were some very impressive code breaking characters there, and again, one of the myths of Bletchley Park is that the code breakers were all uh, tweedy men from universities, men of the professor type, to quote the phrase of the first. Um, head of Bletchley uh, Park and while there were lots of women there in fact it was well over half the Bletchley um, Park staff were women by the second half of World War II the image that we have is that all the women working at Bletchley Park were young girls straight out of uh, school who were um, drummed into the women's royal naval service and then sent to work on really tedious uh activities like operating bomb machines which we used to find the settings on uh, enigma um that's kind of true but it's kind of half true and and the peeling away the uh sort of half truth what you discover is that there were lots of really quite interesting people doing really quite interesting jobs there so to take the women thing for just just to give one example um it turns out that the men of the professor type including quite a lot of women of the professor type so there were actually women doing co-breaking jobs at bletchley contrary to what our picture is the reason it's confusing is that in the official records women code breaking roles were men's jobs because everything was genderized in those days so if you were a woman code breaker you couldn't be a code breaker because that was a man's job so your job description was something like translator or clerical staff or something like that so you go and look at the records and you say oh look there are all these women and they're doing typing mm. no they weren't they were doing code breaking but they couldn't be called code breakers because that was that was a description of a man's job so um it's really really confusing but then when you actually talk to the women or you read their uh memoirs that they wrote when they were allowed to years later you discover that they were doing really quite astonishing things and they were working alongside men and it was really much less uh segregated and compartmentalized uh, along gender lines than we've been used to thinking so uh Again, you know, that's just one example of sort of how being able to talk about the other people at Bletchley Park has been sort of revealed some new, new stories about the place. Yeah, it sounds like there's lots of amazing work going on by lots of different people. Uh, why would you say it's taken so long for other people at Bletchley Park to get the recognition they deserve? Yeah, that's really difficult. Um, uh, I mean, we know that there's been this sort of uh, almost obsessive kind of official secrecy over the place. Um, and uh, I have to say, I don't think I still, I mean, even though I've been thinking and writing about Bletchley Park for many years, I, I don't think I really still got my head around why uh, uh, the secrecy is so persistent. Um, let me just, perhaps it's tedious, but I'll just just spend one minute um, doing a timeline on it. So um, the 
idea that Enigma had been broken and that the Allies had been reading German codes sort of seeped out, leaked out, if you like, in the early late 1960s and early 1970s, but not in the UK. But then some historians had begun to twig what was going on, and there were a couple of historians planning to write books in the mid-70s, at which point the UK government decided, uh-oh, we better get out ahead of the news, and semi-authorised this chap who had been loosely connected with Bletchley Park um, called Group Captain Winterbottom, and they sort of allowed him to publish his account, which was very vague on the technical details and not entirely accurate on the non-technical ones. And so we got this beautiful sort of myth about Bletchley Park, but that, that sold like millions of copies. I mean, literally millions of copies because everybody wanted to get the full, uh, you know, get, get this story sort of essentially from the horse's mouth. So that was great. But we were still very short on technical detail. And then what happened is that some of the guys all thought, well, hang on, if Winterbottom's been allowed to write his book, then surely we can write our stuff. So some people started writing more technical things, including Alan Turing's co-worker, Gordon Welshman. Gordon Welshman had his security clearance removed because he told people how Enigma had been broken. Enigma was by then 30 years obsolete. Nobody could realistically have been using Enigma machines for sending secret messages in the mid-70s, early 80s. I mean, it's just nonsense. So why that was still a secret is still incomprehensible to me. And it goes on. Gradually, things have been declassified by GCHQ, and so lots of material that you can go and look at in the uh, National Archives um, and also in the US National Archives. So there's lots of stuff that has been dribbled out to us, but still there's stuff that's classified. Um, so for example, um, there's a report on a bomb machine that the Americans were developing, which Alan Turing wrote in 1943. I've been asked, I've had to ask for that to be declassified to be allowed to look at it, um, assuming that somebody's still got a copy of it, that is. But, uh, you know, so I know that the document was prepared, but, uh, you know, there's, there's stuff that, you know, is still not available for researchers to look at. It's very, very strange. Um, don't understand why we have all this continuing secrecy. Yeah, it's really fascinating stuff. Sounds like there's a lot yet to still to be unearthed. Well, it's um, very difficult to imagine that... Uh, any of it could still be sensitive. Um, I mean, one one thing I can I can fully understand and, and sympathise with is that if somebody wrote a uh, an account um, that could put the lives of somebody and their families in in danger because it mentions certain names in certain contexts, I can fully see that that's stuff that you probably want to keep under wraps for quite a long time. Mm. Uh, but frankly, technical details about code-breaking machinery that is never going to have any modern-day relevance doesn't seem to fall into that category. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so in this episode, we've been thinking about our favourite Alan Turing facts. Uh, just to finish, can I ask you what your favourite Alan Turing fact is? Um, okay. Uh, I mean, there's 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 lots to choose from. Um, uh, and and I, I guess people would sort of hope to have another sort of Alan Turing eccentricity story, but I'd, I'd like to do something slightly different, actually. Um, one of the things that um, 
my father, so that's Alan Turing's brother, didn't find out about uh, until probably around about the time of Alan's death, was that for years and years, Alan Turing had been making payments to a lady called Hazel Ward. Uh, Hazel, so when, when my father and his brother were both children, they were sent to live with a foster family in the south coast of England. And the foster family had uh, three daughters um, who were very much older than uh, my father and his brother. So they were late teens. Um, and so Hazel was the youngest of these daughters. She was about 12 years older than Alan. But he'd stayed in touch with Hazel all his life. And that was that in itself was quite remarkable because staying in touch with your sort of foster family, particularly with somebody who's quite a lot older than you, is sort of like remarkable. But Hazel was a missionary and she was off in Africa, and I'm not sure which country, possibly the Gambia. But she had been doing sort of essentially charitable missionary type type work um, in in whichever African country it was, and of course that's not paid. And Alan Turing had out of his salary, he'd been making her basically maintenance payments for years and years and years. And I just wow. find that that's extraordinary. And nobody knows that kind of thing about him. Uh, and um, I, I I just think. It's so contrary to the picture that we have of Alan Turing from a certain movie that we haven't talked about yet, but uh, <laughs> um, of somebody who can't form human relationships and doesn't have any kind of uh, understanding of uh, anything beyond his own needs. That is so wrong as a portrayal of Alan that um, uh, it's just nice to have the opportunity to talk about some other aspect of his character that people wouldn't know. Thank you very much for joining us today, James, to talk about the University of Manchester's arguably most famous heritage hero, Alan Turing. So by the time Turing arrived in Manchester, he'd already cracked the enigma, um, potentially saving millions of lives and bringing the war to an end. But what was it that drew him to our mathematics department, do you think? Very simple answer to that one, access to a working computer, because okay. um, this is, uh, okay, it's, it's something a lot of people don't expect. Turing had actually designed a computer um, which was supposed to be being developed at another site, the National Physical Laboratory in Greater London. Um, that project was not going at all well. Um, people there didn't like his designs, there was friction, it, it got rather bogged down. Um, and uh, he actually, around that point, having come up with a full-scale design for a computer, which was eventually built in a slimmed-down form after he left the project, he kind of got bored with designing computers. Um, he was he got much more interested in the question if you already had a computer what could you use it for and that's why he came to Manchester because there were only two other computer projects 
in the country at the time. One in Cambridge, which was pretty well advanced, and Cambridge, you know, he knew Cambridge well, he'd been in Cambridge for years, it was a bit of a natural home for him, but he didn't get on well with the head of that project, Maurice Wilkes. So the only alternative, if he wanted a computer that he could play with, that he could use and try to get interesting outcomes from, the only alternative was Manchester, where Max Newman, who was a mathematician, um, who had worked with Turing for a long time, he taught Turing, um, he was a bit older than Turing, so he taught him uh, in Cambridge, and Newman had also been at Bletchley Park, he designed the big Colossus machines um, towards the end of the war, so the big powerful electronic computers that were built after Turing had left, and so he was, he was somebody who Turing got on with well, and Newman basically decided that it would be, it would be a very good idea if Turing was invited to work at Manchester, and Turing was happy to come along. Okay, so he obviously had a little bit of an ulterior motive for coming, but one, what impact did Turing have on the mathematics department here? Not very much, um, to be okay, honest. Okay, right. uh, um, <laughs> I Well, no, this is an interesting one. Um, departments, universities, of course, were much smaller in those days. They were smaller physically, so people from different subject areas bumped into each other all the time. Laboratories were much smaller. You could walk around the whole of the university in the space of five minutes. So rigid departmental culture didn't really exist. Turing spent his time talking to a whole bunch of different people. People. Um, so he was officially, um, he was a mathematician. Um, there was, um, I mean, the mathematicians were originally, they were housed together in the uh, the old main building, what's now the John Owens building of the university. Um, later on, um, he spent most of his time when he was on campus working with the computer, which was in a separate building, um, which had been built for the, the electrical engineers who'd ended up pretty much in charge of that project. Um, but he talked to all sorts of other people. Um, as you know, late, later uh, later on, his last project was um, was about mathematical biology. So he talked to the biologist. There was a botanist called uh, Claude Wardlaw who he hung out with. Um, he um, wasn't that involved, um, certainly on the teaching side, and he wasn't really involved in in the life of the maths group. Um, in fact, uh, if you ask me about Turing's mathematical career um, outside of computers, I don't know very much about it. Um, okay. I mean he. Um, um, he, he did write a bit, he published a paper on uh, Lie groups, if uh, if any mathematicians are listening. Um, but he is best known for the stuff that he did in what became a whole bunch of other areas. But it was also during his time at Manchester that Turing began to study the concept of artificial intelligence, most famously coming up with the Turing test. Can you tell us a little bit more about this? Yes, the Turing test is... It's a brilliant idea because um, he, he's often seen as being a very, very abstract thinker, but he wasn't. He was um, he was very practical in some ways when he wanted to be. And what he did with the Turing test is he said, um, so a question that people are asking is, will machines ever be able to think? And that's usually, that's a pretty stupid question because they define thinking as being a thing that only humans can do. They come up with completely human-centred definitions of thinking and then they say, no, a machine can't think because a machine's not like a human, which might be a valid opinion, but it's not useful, it's not advancing anything. So he said, I'm going to take that question away and replace it with a practical 
test, which is, so you've got a human who is in conversation with another human and with a machine, but there's a screen between them or there's some sort of arrangement whereby the human can't see which is which. And Turing said, if the term thinking means anything at all that a human wouldn't be able to do, then this is my test. If the human, if the one human can't tell the other human apart from the machine in some given set of circumstances, then you've got to allow that the machine can meaningfully think. Mm -hmm. Okay, or that some form of machine intelligence is possible. And Turing was optimistic that machines would be passing his test by the end of the 20th century. This made him very, very unusual among people who thought seriously about computers, certainly in Britain at that time. The engineers in particular hated um, the idea that a computer was an electronic brain um, because mm. um, it's not an accurate description of the machines they were building. They were just very fast but fairly simple calculating machines. And the engineers said, we don't want people thinking about brains because they'll think computers will cause unemployment. They'll put people out of work or they will take over the world. Remember these science fiction visions, um, they go a long, long way back. People were writing about these ideas in books in, in the early 20th century and even a bit beforehand. So the engineers... It's certainly, certainly a fear that hasn't gone away either today in 2020. No, no, not at all. Uh, and so they said, we don't want all this brain talk. It's not a brain, it's a tool. It's just like a slide rule or a mechanical calculating device, except it runs on electronics and it's really, really fast. And Turing said, you know, I'm not sure that's quite right. Um, I think possibly these machines, OK, they may not be like human brains, but they will meaningfully, they will probably be able to think because you can teach them and they'll be able to teach themselves. Not many years after arriving in Manchester and when he'd switched disciplines again, this time to mathematical biology, that Turing was convicted of indecency, um, a conviction he was posthumously pardoned for, but not until 2013. How did this conviction and the subsequent punishment affect his work? We don't know. Um... It is very difficult to tell. Um, there is, uh, there's kind of, um, there's a popular stereotype that this um, shattered and um, destroyed his life and that he was, uh, he was not able to work. Um, that's certainly going way too far. Um, we do know that in terms of his formal status at the University of Manchester, he was not affected um, by the conviction um, and punishment. Um, that's certainly something that could have happened in those times, um, but he had some quite influential defenders, particularly again Max Newman, um, his, uh, his old friend and mentor. Um, the story goes that the Vice-Chancellor of the time, um, uh, JSB Stopford, who the Stopford building uh, is named after today, um, asked Newman, you know, what, what do I do about this guy? And Newman said, nothing it's it's not it's not a problem it's not going to affect anything um just he's he's not going to do anything problematic for the university just let him carry on and um, stopford was quite happy to do that um 
Turing, um, he was put on um, this, it was a very unusual punishment, this, this experimental course of hormone treatments that was supposed to curb his libido and stop him being a homosexual, um, which, which it clearly didn't do. It had all sorts of other um, consequences. Um, apparently he grew gynomastic tissue, so he grew um, breasts like those of a woman up to a point. Um, it probably didn't do his state of mind uh, any good. Um, it may not have done him that much harm on top of the harm that he'd already faced from learning the hard way that the world was going to treat him like this, and also losing his security clearance, um, which was something that routinely happened to people who were suspected of homosexuality because they were seen as a blackmail risk. Um, and so losing security clearance meant that he couldn't work on interesting problems um, to do with um, cryptography and things to do with national security. Um, so uh, in in that period, those, those last couple of years of his life, um, he sometimes, perhaps often, um, seemed to be quite downcast. Um, but it was always difficult to tell um, with Turing. He had a very complicated and unusual mind, as I say. Um, certainly, he he stopped coming into the university very much, kept working on various projects um, in his own home um, out at Wilmslow, but that was... Um, that doesn't necessarily signify anything. You know, that, that, was, that was Turing. He would engage very strongly when he wanted to, um, but not when he didn't. Well, today, Alan Turing is a true icon of Manchester, and the city's certainly proud to claim him as one of its own, even though he only actually lived here and worked here for less than a decade. Why do you think Turing continues to loom so large in Manchester's heritage? The late Tony Wilson, um, who uh, who was very proud of Manchester's computing heritage, um, got it spectacularly wrong um, from time to time. But um, he he made an interesting uh, uh, observation. This is one of the great Tony Wilson quotations. This is Manchester. We do things differently here. And whatever else you say about Turing, um, he did things differently in all walks of his life. Um, he was um, he was not only a gay man, he was somebody who was open about it in ways that were extremely unusual at the time, but which resonated with um, the gay liberation movement from the 70s onwards and with the kind of vision that grew up around the village of uh, of an open, of a normal um, culture of gay life. Um, I think he would be flabbergasted but quite impressed at uh, the, the, the direction Manchester, Manchester's taken uh, in that respect. Um, he was also um, very unusual as a thinker about computers. As I say, his, um, his brain ideas um, were totally out of line with what, certainly with what the engineers thought um, at the time. They were also um, out of line with later artificial intelligence thinking. Some of the big AI pioneers would say Turing was not an AI guy. He was, um, he drew attention to the field, but he didn't think the way that we think. Um, and his kind of vision of linking different fields together um, 
So, I mean, the stuff that he was doing at the end of his life, so he was using ideas borrowed from physical chemistry to try to explain the formation of shape um, in animal and plant life using a computer. Um, that's a... I was, I was about to say for its time, it's a spectacularly um, ambitious project, but basically for any period, you know, he was more interdisciplinary than most people tend to be. And Manchester, Manchester has kind of needed um, unusual heroes, you know, it's got sporting heroes, musical heroes, going back into the 19th century, it's got a lot of industrial heroes. It's actually had fewer scientific heroes than you might imagine, there was quite a succession of them, but they were mostly in chemistry and atomic physics. Um, with, with a couple of exceptions. So Turing is quite unusual even in terms of Manchester's scientific heritage. So he was, um, he's been a very popular addition to the list. And finally, if you had to choose one, what is your favourite fact about Turing? Oh, uh, there are so many um and the, the, there are the ones that everybody loves the um a lot of them uh, there are a lot of bletchley park stories and they mostly make choring out to be extremely eccentric um and I would question that, you know, a, a lot of them, you know, there's the story that he famously he chained his mug to a radiator to stop it getting stolen and you think is that particular? I mean, it's not what most people do, but you, you can't say that it's not practical. Um, so the best one of those, um, Choring suffered quite badly from hay fever, as many people do. And because he suffered from hay fever, he took to wearing a gas mask. Now, a gas mask is not designed to protect you from hay fever. It's designed to protect you from poisonous gases designed to kill you. So it is a heavy duty piece of kit. And people would say to him, you know, why are you wearing this horrible, clumsy thing, you know, in the summer and it's, it can't be very comfortable. And he said, you know, on, on balance to me, it's worth it. And we are at the moment where, um, as we record this, we're in the middle of an epic national debate about mask wearing. And uh, Choring is somebody who said, well, look at the practicalities of the situation, work out what you've got to do. Doesn't matter if there are other people telling you to do something different. You need to do the thing that works. I certainly didn't know that Turing, an early adopter of the mask, that's brilliant. So, I mean, maybe don't everybody get a Second World War gas mask because they are not no, the not. ideal <laughs> tool for the task in hand, but uh, fairly overall. That's amazing. Thank you so much for talking to me today, James. That's been brilliant. For further information about what you've heard today, visit our website at manchester.ac.uk forward slash the buzz, where you'll also find links to the full versions of all the interviews we've featured today. This is the end of our first season of The Buzz, and we hope you've enjoyed it. Remember, you can go back and revisit some of the subjects that have helped both put and keep Manchester on the map for science and engineering, including fast fashion, dinosaur digs, and graphene. If you have any questions about what you've heard today or in any of our episodes, our email is fsemarketing at manchester.ac.uk. 
You can follow the faculty on Instagram and Twitter at UOMSciEng and search for our Facebook page and YouTube account. We'll be back with a new season of The Buzz very soon. Thank you.